crunchy, salty foods usually have to do with unexpressed anger and frustration, right? It's like you're going to bite someone's head off. Sweet foods typically have to do with either feeling like you're not sweet enough or there's not enough sweetness in your life. Warm foods are often connected to a craving for emotional warmth. Uh, spicy foods, uh, whether it's a fear of them or a desire for them, a lot of times is connected to uh, craving excitement, stimulation, or change, or being afraid of excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, I mean, we know this from Valentine's Day, right? There's a connection between romance and sensuality and sexuality. So these are beginning places to explore because it's going to take you to um, your unconscious where that's where the stuff that you don't know about lives. <laughs> so the food though can point you in that right direction. And so rather than it being, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with you. How about thinking of, of it as you have a signal that's going to let you know there's something else going on that you need to address and take care of. Just like the red light that goes on in your car to tell you you need fuel. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eat Realty Hill podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and for today's show, I'm filling, I'm recording, not filming, I am recording out of my home because given every day that, you know, we wake up into, every day is a different day. And on this particular morning, I was supposed to record a podcast with an incredible human from our community here in Whistler, two actual incredible human beings, Natasha and Ed from Ed's Bread. They have a beautiful bakery where they make the most incredible um, breads and, and other delicious wares for you to enjoy. But they also have an amazing story of how they started their business how they got into plant-based whole food eating and ditching the dairy, ditching the meat and to create this wonderful business. So they're going to be on our podcast in two weeks. But of course, I went in to record this podcast with them and literally the keypad door lock just wouldn't work, wouldn't let me in. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, I have a lot on the go. I'm training right now to run across Canada and to cycle across Canada. That's a 7,120 kilometer endeavor, all to raise awareness about food as medicine, which is what this podcast is about. It's about people who use food to overcome their chronic diseases, to reverse their chronic diseases, to reclaim their life, to do incredible uh, feats, no matter what it is, whether they're an athlete or an entrepreneur or or a mom or dad who stays at home with their kids and wants to nourish their children with real living food. You know, food is the foundation of this podcast. So of course, the door does not unlock. And I know for a lot of people, they would have stressed by it. And if I had had my heart rate monitor that I usually wear every single day for training, but if I had it on, I can assure you that it probably wouldn't have gone up too many beats. Now, some people might think that it's because I am ambivalent or, you know, I don't care enough, but that's not it. What I've come to learn over 
my lifetime. And what I love about today's podcast with Dr. Anita Johnston, who wrote the most incredible book that everybody needs to read, Eating in the Light of the Moon. But how we handle stress is also just as important as food as well. So, you know, my blood pressure probably didn't go up, you know, too many notches. I called the key company who had installed the locks and I said to them, hey, third time round, the locks have broken. What's the next step of action? And having been trained by Tony Robbins, having been trained by Bill Nasby, creating your reality from when I was quite young, having been trained by, you know, and done a lot of education and training with some really progressive folks out there who understand the neuroscience of stress, Mel Robbins. I mean, there's so many people. What you learn is that number one, worrying does not change anything in your life. Worrying will not produce any different results than the situation that you're currently in. So what is the point in worrying about things? Stressing as well, unless you're being chased by lions and tigers or being attacked by, you know, somebody in the street, you know, we really are, we don't need to be in this fight or flight response at all. So if the lock didn't open and I had to call my guest for the podcast and say, hey, you know what, can we reschedule, which we were able to, he had a free day. My schedule's pretty open today. We just pushed it back until the locks are open and I can get back into the podcasting studio. But it's really important to know that the way we manage the other 10% of our life, 90% being our diet is what fuels us, nourishes us, helps our body regenerate, repair. It fuels our brain so we can think well. And if you're in a state right now where you're not able to think clearly, where you're in constant state of anxiety, um, stress, feeling overwhelmed or underwhelmed, it's really important to address that. And the way we do it and the way we teach you how to do it is through food and eating foods that are nourishing, that contain all the amino acid profile, that has all of your micronutrients, not just your macronutrients. And when you go ahead and you do that, it's unbelievable how your brain will bounce back, your body bounces back. And then of course, there's this other 10% of your health that is dependent on the way you manage stress, which I promise you, when you turn to food as medicine, it's incredible how you will have a higher capacity to handle all kinds of stresses. From as simple as, you know, missing the bus to go to work, the locks not working for your podcast studio, the babysitter not showing up, you know, it snows and you can't get out of your driveway. That happens to me all the time when I have meetings, um, being in a snow community, you know, to somebody in your life, you know, who's sick and who might be dying of a disease. Um, I've had clients who are optimized nutritionally, but also optimized mentally. They know how to handle stress and they can experience the same type of trauma or difficulties and they will transition and move through it very differently than someone who's undernourished or doesn't have the tools to manage their stress. So I share this story with you today, just in case you're listening and you want to learn more about how to manage stress, definitely follow us on our uh, Facebook pages, our Instagram pages, our emails, get on our email list, because we're always teaching work different workshops, not just around food, but about that other 10% of what also contributes to a healthy life. 
So managing stress, sleeping, your sex life, um, moving your body, um, not moving your body too much. That's a really important topic as well. Um, and what do I mean by that? Definitely get on our mailing list so you can learn all about these things and more. But for now, let's dive into our guest today, Dr. Anita Johnson. She is a psychologist, a storyteller, author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, like I mentioned, she had, which has also been published in seven different languages. This book has been around for a long time. She is an expert in this field, having done this work, I think, for over 35 years now. She is the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, um, an interactive online women's circle. So if you're somebody who wants to have a better relationship with food, please sign up for her Light of the Moon Cafe. Um, she also has a book club or you know a workbook as well around eating in the Light of the Moon. So get over to her website and get that, get those books, get those workbooks join a tribe of people who are building really healthy relationships around food. I can't stress this enough. So Dr. Johnson has been working in this field um, of helping people overcome their eating difficulties and their body image distress, like I said, for over 35 years. And she is currently the clinical director of the Ipono in Hawaii, um, which has a residential treatment program which if I had any family member or loved one, I would definitely recommend them to go to this treatment center in Maui. Um, they have outpatient eating programs there as well in Honolulu. And she's also the executive director of eating disorder programs for the Integrative Life Center in Nashville. So Dr. Anita Johnston provides virtual individual consultation. So despite COVID, she works with people all over the globe. Um, so don't worry about that. You can still get in with her and she conducts workshops worldwide. She is best known for integrating metaphor and storytelling into her training as a clinical psychologist to explain the complex issues that underlie struggles with eating, exercise, and body image. So who of you out there that are listening, who of us have not been affected? by eating, exercise, body image issues at one point in our life. For some people, you know, it can be all consuming and for other people, it can just tap in and out to us, you know, from moment to moment throughout the day or throughout the week or throughout the month. But everybody we know has been affected by this. So learn as much as you can from Dr. Anita Johnson in this podcast and from her books, because what you learn can definitely help a loved one in your life. And you know what to do. If you love this show, please share it with others. Just click the little up arrow in your podcast, whether you're listening at iTunes or Spotify or wherever, or on YouTube, if you're watching the video live, definitely share this podcast with other people because the information contained in these storytelling podcasts can truly help change a person's life so that they can heal, get better, and realize their optimum potential. So without further ado, here is Dr. Anita Johnston. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. And here we have Anita Johnston on our show today. And I'm so thrilled to have Anita. So thank you for being here on our Eat Real to Heal podcast. I'm pleased to be here. 
So we are going to be diving in to so much conversation around food, emotions, eating, our relationship to society, um, and, and I mean, truly, and so much more, and also getting into the work that you're doing with your clients and the, and the different organizations that you work with. But before we dive into all of that, I want to go back to prior to 1996, when Eating in the Light of the Moon came out, and what was happening before that? What prompted you to write this book? <laughs> First of all, it took me 10 years to write the book. Wow. So it was a very organic process. I was uh, living in Hawaii at the time and I had a couple of um, children and a home office. And I had created the Anorexia and Bulimia Center of Hawaii that was back in eight, 1982 and was really still back then still discovering what was going on um, with people who were who were struggling. Back then, it was just girls and women. So I was curious, why? Why is it females? And why is it these particular females? And, and um, why is the struggle around food and eating and weight? And so that's, that was where my curiosity went. And um, the book came out of my experiences working with these folks, uh, we created the center as one of those things you created and they'll come and they came of all ages, all sizes, all shapes, all ethnicities, all struggling with eating in some way. And so being just very curious about this, I'm, I'm a storyteller, but I'm also a story listener as a psychologist. Mm. So I was just listening as carefully as I could to their stories to see if I could figure this out. The book came out of the work because as I was starting to see the common denominator and look at the bigger picture, um, because these were all very different individuals, but they did have this thing in common, this particular struggle, um, I started sharing it with my clients in my private practice and they kept asking me, well, where can I read more about this? And I realized, well, it hasn't been written. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when I began to write the book, but it was initially going to be just a work, um, more like a, um, an, a little booklet for my clients, but it just kept growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. And I love how you um, brought up the part about ethnicity. So people from all different cultures and backgrounds mm -hmm. and religions mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm sure there's studies that have been done, but does it show that anorexia, bulimia, eating disorders is predominant in certain cultures or certain, let's say, um, you know, uh, individuals with economic backgrounds or, you know, let's say, um, you know, hemispheres or closer to the sun or, you know, what are the demographics around that? I, you know, I hesitate. Uh, uh, First of all, because I don't really know the numbers. Right. And second of all, I don't really trust the numbers. Yeah. I, I, I trust my experience. And what I saw was all ages, all, all you know, ethnicities, all sizes. Yeah. Um, but the research, you have to understand that most of the research has done on a, been done on a very limited population. Oh, yeah. And even all, you know, in the entire world, all of the um, behavioral health research is a tiny fraction and it's typically yeah. college 
white college Americans. Yeah. So, so I'm cautious about, about that because I don't know the numbers, but I certainly know from my experience that it, 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 it's, comes in all flavors. Yeah. I remember, I can't remember what grade I was in, maybe grade eight or nine. It was definitely junior high school, but they showed in one of our health sciences class, they showed Karen Carpenter's um, uh, documentary or movie that was Mm -hmm. made about her. And it was interesting because the way they addressed it was just to show us the movie and say this is possible so don't starve yourself which there is so much more it's so much more complex than that Um, and it was great that they showed that and that really left a lasting impression on me but actually from um, an interesting set I'm a researcher so I tend to get very Mm -hmm. curious about things so I started Mm -hmm. trying to understand like why would she do this to herself and what you know I was and I back then I didn't know I would eventually go into psychology (laughs) at all but I was really curious about individual behavior but then what it did to me actually was that I was like oh you know people can you know, throw up their food. It wasn't something I had ever been exposed to. So I was like, I wonder what that feels like. So, and what does it, would it feel like to starve yourself? Now I'm probably unique in the sense that when I see something, I want to experiment and taste it and feel it and try it. So I did maybe two weeks and I remember reflecting on it being like, well, I don't like how that feels in my throat. And I don't like the feeling of my belly, um, you know, gurgling because I had never been ever deprived of food in my life that I could remember. And so, but then it was interesting because I wonder what it did for other people, Mm -hmm. right? Just showing them that documentary and then just leaving these young, impressionable teenagers to go out there, girls and boys. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it definitely was probably not the way to to handle exposure. It's problematic because back when we first started, so when we started Anorexia and Bulimia Center of Hawaii, Karen Carpenter had, her story had come out. So people knew what anorexia was. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was already in the mainstream. Uh, Bulimia had just been added. So it was brand new. Binge eating disorder wasn't, you know, was far off in the distance. Mm -hmm. But what we did our very first year was that we gave 100 free talks to the community. But we started Mm -hmm. to realize very quickly that talking about the behaviors and describing the behaviors was destructive. Yeah. Because we were giving people ideas who had never had ideas before. Exactly. And those ideas stick if you happen to be struggling with uh, other kinds of problems that you don't know how to resolve in any other way. If you have a love-hate relationship with your mother or your boyfriend just ditched you or you're on a career path that doesn't serve you, then what happens is people can get hooked on those behaviors because they become a distracting element. And that's, what, that's part of why they become so addictive. So early on in the game, we said, okay, we're not describing the behaviors anymore. Mm. We're gonna talk more about what the, the meaning is behind the struggle and, um, and, and speak about it in those terms because it became very clear after listening to so many of my clients saying, oh yeah, I saw this movie. And I got this idea and I thought, okay, I, I don't want to be a part of that. So it, it's wow. risky. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I've always wondered about that. And I was like, well, why would I engage in that behavior? And even at the time, I remember 
thinking it was an experiment. And if I had, you know, struggles in my family at that time, it's really easy to see how it could have gone another direction. Um, and, and I'm sure, certain for some people it did, like you mentioned, just like, it's, you know, somebody saying that, hey, if you try heroin, it'll take away all your problems. You'll feel so good. Um, similar to that. Now, another thing that you mentioned is um, the fact that um, you were working with, you saw that it was predominantly women. Now, is that still the case? Or do we know now how many men are affected or compared to women or all genders? We what really we talk do about. know is that men are starting to show up more. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you know, had they been struggling all along mm -hmm. and not sought treatment because it was a woman's disease or whatever, um, that I don't know, but I do know that more and more we're starting to see boys and men um, who are struggling. And, and, and the culture is changing, mind you. So I, I, I didn't even grow up in this culture. I grew up on, on the island of Guam back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I'd never, I didn't know anyone who dieted back when I was growing up. It wasn't a thing. So that's not the case now, and that's not the case all over the world. So, so that's changing, and what's starting to happen is that um, as more and more girls and women are finding agency in, in the patriarchal culture that they didn't used to have before, what's also happening for boys and men is their, their value, the value placed on their physical appearance is starting to shift because it used to be for females it was how they looked and for males it was how they performed mm -hmm. and now all those edges are blurring and so yeah. we're also seeing culturally a greater emphasis for males on how they appear how they look so yeah. i think there's a lot of factors that are happening here yeah, there are definitely lots and lots of factors. And I mean, media has always played into that and will always play into that as well. So as the trends change with whether you should be curvy or stick bigger or flat chested or, you know, have big pecs or no pecs and wear skinny black jeans. I mean, it's all affecting, um, you know, it's all affects our relationship to food. Now, with when you were in Hawaii and you're setting up the center, um, you know, what were some of the original, like early on approaches that you were taking um, with your clients and how has that shifted over the last, um, you know, 20 plus years? Because we've also seen, and this is from my perspective and maybe you see it differently, but um, you know, this shift in trends around eating, which I know have always been there. Like my mom was doing the experimenting with the cabbage soup diet back in the mm -hmm. early eighties. And now it's like keto and veganism and, and, you know, fasting and so on. And how have you seen your work shift in relationship to, to what's happening in the world of food as we know it now? Well, I, I don't think the way I, I work has shifted. I think the way I understand um, uh, some more of the complexities of what's beneath the, the particular struggle with food. So back when I started, um, there were some early theories about eating disorders were caused by trauma. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started listening to all the stories that, that people were coming to me with, there were definitely people that had some severe trauma even complex trauma, 
But there were all these folks that came from loving, intact families, had no trauma to speak of, and they were struggling as well. So that's when I thought, okay, the answer isn't with the trauma. Um, there's other things that are going on. And so that got me to, to look to see what those were. Fast forward now, uh, I, I work more with, uh, in a residential setting. And what I'm seeing across the board is trauma. So I don't know if it's because it's that level of care. And it's also different kinds of trauma that we didn't really understand back then. Things like attachment trauma, where it's not simply what happened and should not have happened, but also what should have happened and didn't happen. Mm. So, um, so that's how it's changed for me, because I'm always looking deeper beneath the surface. But as you say, the, the different diets, they come and go. But I, I, if, I don't know that that has, I don't know if that has really changed my approach that much. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that it, I mean, it truly comes down to the individual. So whether they mm-hmm. were in the seventies or, you know, in the two thousands and whether it's a keto diet or a, whatever, you know, food trends are, I mean, it's much, much deeper than all of that surface societal stuff that's happening. Um, and are there some, like, as you talk about the differences in what should have happened, it didn't happen versus what happened and shouldn't have happened. Like, what are some examples there? I mean, they're probably so vast and diverse, but that, you know, as for example, parents raising children, and maybe this is a selfish question because I have three girls, um, two of which are teenagers and one of which is nine years old. And I'd like to think we have a healthy relationship with, you know, in all areas of our lives, you know, with nature and food and each other and healthy levels of attachment and and healthy levels of independence. But I mean, as a parent, you just never know. So are there things that parents can look out for or know, or um, are there warning signs or things that parents can do or should not do? Obviously, that's a very broad, big question, but you know, have you seen, so ultimately, have you seen patterns? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that parents can do, and really it's sort of our job, is to sort of run interference with this culture that we live in, because the culture has gone mad, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the, the insanity around um, eating food and physical appearance, because we live in a culture that is so darn literal, so that um, it, it doesn't understand the, the invisible things, the, the nuanced connections. But what I see and how this is, is connected, I think, to attachment trauma, and, and this is the case for all of us, by the way. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, there's all those people with eating disorders or who have kids who have eating disorders and there's us. And No, it, it's for all of us because what happens with someone who's struggling with an eating disorder is that their whole focus often is trying to fit in mm-hmm. because they think there's something wrong with them. Um, and so because we live in a literal culture, then when they think about fitting in, they think about appearance. I've got to look. A certain way. But if you can kind of go back to how this connects with attachment, again, for all of us, is um, we have these two very strong drives that we're born with. One is the drive for attachment. 
um, because we're mammals, we're not lizards. We don't just hatch out of an egg and go on our way, right? No, we have to attach to our caregivers in order to survive. Mm -hmm. However, there is another equally strong drive, and that is a drive for authenticity, mm -hmm. to be who we are meant to be, our unique beingness that we're bringing to the world. Um, but as we grow up, these two drives can come into conflict. Um, and when they come into conflict in childhood, guess which one wins? Mm. It has to be attachment. We have to survive. So, and this can, this can vary. There's a lot of ways in which this can happen. But if you can think of little kid wants a cookie, Mommy says, no, you can't have cookie because we're having dinner in an hour. Little kid throws a temper tantrum. I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And mommy says, if you don't stop that, you're not going to get any cookies at all. And, and little kid goes, okay, I don't want a cookie. I don't want a cookie. So what happens there is you choose attachment over authenticity because the reality is you mm -hmm. want that cookie, but you cannot sacrifice this, this relationship. So that's just a small example. But what can happen over time is maybe, you know, the parents demand that you be a certain way. And maybe you get messages that you're not accepted for your differentness or your uniqueness. And so, so what can happen over time, that pattern of whenever there's a conflict between authenticity and attachment gets carried into adulthood. Mm. When really the authenticity now, it needs to be more important. But um, the other thing is that whenever you choose attachment over authenticity, it creates a pain and that pain can accumulate and it can grow and it can deepen and then that becomes the pain that you carry with you into adulthood and you keep creating more of it and what gets confused is the difference between belonging and fitting in mm -hmm. so when you just when you're abandoning true self in order to attach that's where you're trying to fit in you're trying to look like and act like and think like and feel like and be like how you perceive others want you to think and look and act and feel and and people who struggle with disordered eating are so super sensitive they can tell mm -hmm. <laughs> they can tell exactly what someone wants of them and provide that before that person even knows it so then they go into you know they as they grow the pain of not being their authentic self because they're afraid they can't be in relationship if they have it, that gets deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then that becomes the function of the eating disorders to distract them from that pain. So that's a complicated yeah. way of saying, I think what parents can do to run interference with a culture that demands that you, you know, look and behave a certain way is to really encourage their kids to be their authentic self. Yeah. You, you really brought up with so many incredible points. I mean, that resonate even with me in my own childhood, with my, you know, um, being raised um, in my particular family, with my parents and brothers. And then I think about my own relationship with my kids there and, you know, and of course, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast, you know, has probably done what I just did while I was listening to you. It's to have like memories coming in, um, mm -hmm. you know, for all those moments. I was really for, um, thankful for a beautiful course. You said that, you know, even that, that story about the cookie, 
and the child and, you know, attachment versus authenticity. And I just remember this one parenting book or course that I take took, and it was just wonderful to, um, when my kids would want something sweet and they would want candy before dinner and, you know, and it was to just acknowledge actually that they wanted something sweet, like, oh, you're craving something sweet. So instead of saying no to the cookie, you just say yes to, you know, another healthier option that's still sweet so that their needs are still being met. Um, and it's not going to interfere with the dinner and it's not going to interfere with their health. But at the same time, you're acknowledging what it is that they want. Right. Um, and that's a lot about what, I mean, that's why I loved your book so much. As I mentioned before this podcast, uh, before we started recording, I was introduced to your book by a really wonderful friend of mine, Tracy Higgs, who's a fabulous nutritionist. And she used to use this book because she worked with teens who had eating disorders through Big Sisters of Canada, I believe. And so um, she would tell the, you know, talk about your book to everybody. And I actually had forgotten about your book for a little while there. Um, and I just remembered it again a few years ago and I started recommending it to every, all of my clients actually. Um, and I work with people of chronic disease and so they use food as metabolic nutrition to reverse their disease. But just because you're reversing a disease, I mean, there's so much more, right? To what you're going through. And so when they started reading this book alongside, all of a sudden their relationship to food completely changed. Instead of fighting, you know, the fact that they were losing out on all these like chips and popcorn or, or whatever it was, these refined products, they started to embrace food so much differently um, and not seeing it as like an elimination program, but seeing it as a program of abundance as well. But that wasn't, had nothing really to do with the food, but it had to do with who they were inside that was shifting as a result of your book. Mm. So yeah, so, so powerful. Um, so let's, I want to dive into your book more then and really talk about how your book is very different from, you know, a lot of other books out there on um, eating disorders. And I love what you said earlier too, is that you are not broken or stupid. And I think that's a very powerful statement. So could you elaborate on that more? Because I think our listeners need to, to hear that for themselves. Yeah, because a lot of times people think if they're struggling with eating or food, there's something wrong with them. And again, we live in a culture that is more than happy to endorse that belief because there are lots of people making lots of money over you feeling there's something wrong with you and you have to spend money to fix it. Okay, yeah. so that's that's the reality. That's the soup we live in. But so it it it's helpful to understand that whatever the struggle happens to be has meaning, deep, profound meaning a lot of times um, that can help you find what the real struggle might happen to be for you. One of my favorite sayings, it's a Zen saying that says, don't get stuck looking at the finger pointing to the moon. Look at the moon. Hmm. So let's say you happen to be, you, you find yourself binging on, um, potato chips. Uh, uh, so it's like, you go, what's wrong with me? I know I shouldn't be eating these. I know these are bad for me. I know I should be having fruits and vegetables or whatever it is you say to yourself. Um, and, and, and yet the, the struggle continues because the chips, the, the potato chips are doing something for you 
that you don't know what it's doing. Now, it's one thing if you're, you know, you're eating them and, um, and, and they're not taking over your life. Um, and that's just something you enjoy doing. But it's when you find yourself compelled to mm -hmm. eat them, that's when you know there's deeper meaning. And so um, a lot of the work that I do is helping people decode that meaning to translate it. And I have, I have online courses that I do that with, and um, I have an interactive one uh, that's running right now at the Light of the Moon Cafe, where people tell me their foods and I help them break it down to see, okay, what's the deeper meaning for that? And typically, for example, um, crunchy, salty foods usually have to do with unexpressed anger and frustration, right? It's like you want to bite someone's head off. Sweet foods typically have to do with either feeling like you're not sweet enough or there's not enough sweetness in your life. Warm foods are often connected to a craving for emotional warmth. Uh, spicy foods, uh, whether it's a fear of them or a desire for them, a lot of times is connected to uh, craving excitement, stimulation, or change, or being afraid of excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, I mean, we know this from Valentine's Day, right? There's a connection between romance and sensuality and sexuality. So these are beginning places to explore because it's going to take you to um, your unconscious where that's where the stuff that you don't know about lives. <laughs> so the food, though, can point you in that right direction. And so rather than it being, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with you, how about thinking of, of it as, you have a signal that's going to let you know there's something else going on that you need to address and take care of. Just like the red light that goes on in your car to tell you you need fuel or you need oil. So what exactly. if you understood it in that way? Then it, things start to shift. Yeah, no, I love that. Just stopping for a moment to take a breath when you do get that impulse or craving and then to ask yourself, like, you know, what is it that I really, really need right now? And I think in this day and age, we're going so fast all the time. And I know I definitely am prone to this is that where we don't even stop to check in with ourselves, right? We're just going, going, going and everything's so automated. And we just grab the first thing in front of us. You know, Canadians, Americans are eating out now more than ever. You know, cooking at home is not something that a lot of people, well, now because of COVID, a lot of people are cooking at home, um, which is probably a blessing in a lot of ways. Um, but it's true, like we don't stop to check in. And so what you're saying is we should check in, stop, take a moment and ask ourselves. And do you have tools for how to get somebody to stop to check in? Well, it, it's, <clears throat> it begins with this idea there's meaning. It's mm -hmm. not just something you're doing because you're stupid or lazy or whatever judgment might might pop in about that. So so once you understand there's meaning and it's an opportunity right then and there mm -hmm. to find out something more about yourself that's really important. Um, so so right there, that's the the tool of awareness. The second tool is compassion. Um, to not beat yourself up, to not judge yourself, you know, for, mm -hmm. for either for doing it or for not knowing why you do it. Um, and, and that sometimes it, it's hard to cultivate because what will happen uh, for many people is they get the awareness, but then they don't have this, the, the tool, uh, the skill set yet to accomplish what it is the food is, is bringing them. So let's say, for example, 
Um, somebody binges on chocolate chip cookies because they discover there's a connection between how they used to feel when their grandmother made chocolate chip cookies and really what's going on is they're lonely, but their grandmother is now dead. Um, and so how am I going to get that? Uh, and, and then you have to start tracking, okay, what is the kind of connection you're hungry for really? What is it? What's, what, what's the essence of what you got from grandma? Was it that she really listened to you? Was it that she had a sense of humor? I mean, what is it? And start tracking that. And then, okay, now how do you create that in your life? How do you mm. either seek out uh, uh, people that have those qualities? Uh, then what happens is, oh, now we need the skill set of boundaries because what, what are we, you're not going to find that in everybody. So how do you protect yourself from, from getting close to those people that aren't like that? I mean, mm -hmm. so you see there, there's a lot of skill set involved um, once you become aware, but they're just skills. Anyone can learn them. You don't mm -hmm. need some magical DNA. It doesn't mean that you're fundamentally flawed. It just right. means that for whatever reason... You didn't learn those skills to, you know, bring that into your life. That something that's really important to you. Yeah. And also you don't need to have, you know, I see a lot of my clients who have been seeing um, counselors and psychologists and therapists for years and years and years and years, but they're still in the same pattern. And this was one of the issues that I had when I was studying psychology and also learning about all the different methods. And then when I stepped out of university to realize there's a whole host of other ways mm -hmm. that you can coach people and counsel people that are not about keeping them in their pattern and their story right. and repeating the same story, right. but without giving them the tools to move right. forward. Yeah. And what I love about what you're saying is that, you know, you provide a lot of these resources so people can learn how to do this themselves. They can, you know, slowly over time build these new muscles where instead of judgment, right, it's observation, you know, mm -hmm. that's what I love so much about your book um, and the tools that you have now. And I, you, there's a free guide that people can download on your website as well, which is really, I love that guide. Um, mm -hmm. And so actually, I'll give I'll give the link because it's, it's lightofthemooncafe.com forward slash E-R-H standing for Eat Real to Heal. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. Okay, that is funny. And that's just a coincidence, folks. <laughs> so yeah, but I think... That, that's the idea is that there's skills and, and mm -hmm. it's just like learning to ride a bike or, or swim or drive a car. Uh, it does, these skills take repetition. They're very different yeah. from insight. Insight can happen like this. Mm -hmm. And that's why people get frustrated because they go, I know better. Why am I still doing it? You know, I know this isn't, but yeah, I can't. And then they judge themselves and, and then it's down that rabbit hole, which is, as we all know, that have been down that rabbit hole, of what's yeah. wrong with me. It's not fun. But once you realize there's skills and they require repetition, and there's one skill that I have found, I've seen, oh, you know, I've been in this field now 35 years, a long time. Yeah. I've seen thousands of people totally, completely free themselves from their eating difficulties, but I've never seen anyone do it without this skill. So I think it's the most important. Okay. And that's the skill for assertive communication, because mm -hmm. that's the ability to identify identify, accept, and express your feelings in the kindest way possible. 
we are not taught this. I mean, mm. I spent countless hours with algebra and I, to this day, I don't use it, yeah. right? But, but assertive communication, I have to use it every single day. And, and there's so much that's packed into this one skill. It's boundary setting, it's soul seeking, because um, I, I use a for, there's a specific formula that I use, which is when you, I feel because, and when you leave your towel on the floor, which is just the facts, mm. what's, the, what's the behavior that's stirring up feelings with me? I feel, now we don't want to say, um, you make me feel. We're no. taught to talk like that, but it gets in the way because it's accusatory, it's blaming, and, and it shuts the door to communication shut, rather than, I feel annoyed. And then the because part requires that you do some soul searching. How come that towel on the floor stirs up, because mm. the feeling of annoyance is my feeling. It, they didn't make me feel that way. Uh, it was there, but it got stirred up for sure. So how come the towel on the floor stirs up feelings of annoyance? Well, because it gives me the impression they expect me to pick up after them. Mm -hmm. So there we go. When you leave your towel on the floor, I feel annoyed because it seems to me you expect me to pick up after you. One sentence. Now, this is so powerful because the function of disordered eating is to stuff or restrict your feelings. Mm -hmm. So if you're not if you're able to allow them to flow, which is what feelings are designed to do, their energy, um, emotion, energy in motion, they're designed mm -hmm. to flow. So if you're able to have the skill set that allows them to flow in a respectful way, you, you're putting the disordered eating out of a job. It has nothing to do. Mm, that's so good. I'm taking notes here. <laughs> Those, yeah, I love, um, it reminds me of Marshall Rosenberg's work, uh, nonviolent communication, yeah. but simpler even because mm -hmm. it's only three things you need to remember and, and it just, and it flows very well, you know, yeah. when you, and in fact, this morning, I just went through this with my daughter because she flooded our bathroom with water balloons yesterday and, you know, and I wanted to go in there raging, you know, <laughs> but I really had to take a step back and, you know, and I wasn't definitely did not implement it this way, but, you know, and it was a little bit accusatory, but I definitely managed to be like, I recognize you're having fun, you yeah. know, but. The cool thing is with kids, so this is a language, and as you learn the language, and again, like any language, it takes lots of practice, but when my daughter was, uh, uh, I think she was all of maybe 10 years old, and I, I had gotten up late, she'd gone off to school, and there was a note on the kitchen counter, and it said, Mommy, when you said you would sign my permission slip and didn't, I got mad because you broke your promise. I went, yes, she I used the formula. Now, I never sat my kids down and taught them the formula, but I yeah. worked it, right? I yeah. worked at trying to communicate in this way. And so the kids mimic. And so yeah. it's like, I was so, I saved that note. It was like, I was so excited. So, <laughs> and I have to share a similar story that, because we started using it with my oldest daughter, Marshall, nonviolent communication, mm -hmm. and we had taken his course. And it, and like you said, it is, it you literally are learning a language. It's like you're it's learning language. Greek or Latin. Mm -hmm. So you have to practice it. And a lot of times you can't find the words. So he just right. says, you know, 
say hum when you're looking for the words as opposed to saying anything else until you really learn to, that it's like it flows. And the same thing, I'd had my second daughter. I was breastfeeding her, but I was trying to do art with my first daughter. And we had been using it with her like since she was quite little, um, you know, even I think an infant. And she just looked at me and she said, mom, I know you need to breastfeed that baby. But when I see that your boob in her mouth, I feel so, and she went, and it was perfect. She really did it. And then she told me exactly what she needed. I need you to take your boobie out of her mouth and do art with me. And I was like, it couldn't have been more clear. And I was like, I get it, babe. Like, you know, stop trying to multitask here and let's give the girl attention. Um, But it is true that they do get, like, you don't have to teach it to them. You just need to do it yourself. And then they will reflect that back to you. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people say, I don't want my daughters to struggle with the eating the way I do. And what can I do? And it's like, do your work, mm-hmm. do your own healing, yeah. heal your wound. Um, because that's, that's how you are going to be able to run interference, like yeah. I said, with the culture. Yeah. So you'll see it coming a mile away. Exactly. And you just made me think about... Um, just the concept of eating disorders and what that means to people. Cause I think a lot of people, including myself would it say, you know, if it, an eating disorder is anorexia or bulimia or overeating, um, you know, to the, you know, ex, to excess, like, like really obesity, but there's actually a lot more different types of eating disorders. Cause it's quite a big spectrum. Right. And, and it's a continuum. It's yeah. like, yeah, it, it, it's, and, and, people move around on that continuum and it's I'm very careful with the language because um people say well I'm anorexic or she's bulimic it's like no that's not their identity Mm -hmm. they may struggle with that and this is where um diagnoses I I think can be used dangerously because it becomes a label and then it becomes limiting and it's not true even nobody Mm -hmm. is their diagnoses so um, I, I think I, I like to use the term eating difficulties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was in New Zealand uh, many, many years ago, and they use that term, I went, oh, there we go. That's beautiful. It, there's, there's not the judgment. There's not the, the limitation. Um, there's a lot of room for movement with that term. And so more often than not, I, 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 for a while, when I, when I wrote Eating in the Light of the Moon, I had come up with the term disordered eating because I thought, okay, that's less judgmental but even now nowadays that's become kind of judgmental so and the reason why i focus so much on that is dropping the judgment is essential for recovery yeah um uh and it's it's essential for everything actually i think um but but particularly if if there's a struggle so you know learning to use the language different can make a difference yeah. And so important for yourself to use the language differently, but also for the families of mm-hmm. individuals who have eating difficulties. Cause I just mm-hmm. was recently working with a client who for lots of different reasons, not just, um, her eating difficulties was, you know, she had gone down to 72 pounds. And then by the time she came to see me, uh, because she had an autoimmune disorder that was actually um, quite advanced and, you know, nothing was working. The drugs weren't working. The psychotherapy wasn't working, like all of that. And basically they wanted to admit her and, and she'd already been admitted, but, you know, it was complicated situation. And so, 
But what was fascinating is that when she showed up, she really wasn't portraying any signs of eating difficulty. She loved food and she loved eating. And, you know, but this autoimmune disorder was actually taking a lot out of her, but her family, because she had had an eating disorder in her early twenties, which she had gone to therapy for, for eight months in a, in a uh, center had come out of that beautifully, but this center happened to focus on really clean eating, eating real foods. So she had grown up eating real foods. So she was always slender you know, never gained weight really because of the fact that, you know, these are clean, real foods. You can eat them in abundance and still be quite slim in her case, because that's also genetically like her whole family is quite slim, but the family kept this label so tightly attached to her from when her early twenties that for her, they couldn't even see the fact that she had a diagnosed autoimmune. And they're like, it's not the autoimmune disorder, not the autoimmune disorder. And I know it's their fear. It's their labeling. It's their judgment. It's everything. But I think it's important for family members to also evolve too, as the individual evolves. And that was a really big lesson because, um, it can help that individual so much to not have to yeah, be attached. Yeah, that's the danger of a, of a label. And, and then it becomes your identity. Yeah. And that's the, the most, you know, limiting part of it all. Yeah. And that's what we saw too, is that, you know, she was just done with having that label attached to her and, and, you know, for the rest of your life. But that is one question that I do have is it, you know, with eating difficulties, um, and especially if somebody has been given a diagnosis, is it like alcoholism that once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic or, um, or does not that? Not in my experience. Mm. I've seen, I, like I said, I've seen thousands of people, of people totally, completely recover, recovered period. It's over. Wow. They obsess about food. Food is fuel. It's n- nourishment. Sure, they might eat at times when they're not hungry if it's a birthday cake and mm-hmm. everyone else is having it. But, but n- no, that totally, completely possible. However, what has to happen is that you have to get to the root issues. If mm-hmm. you don't, it's like a weed. You cut it off at the top, given the right circumstances, it's going to come right back. Um, and so you have to, you have to go subterranean and clear the roots and then it's a done deal. So there's similarities and there's differences, for example, with alcoholism. So with alcoholism, you can drink and drink and drink all you want, not have a problem if you're drinking milk or orange juice or whatever, right? It's the Mm -hmm. substance of alcohol. That's the problem, not the process of, of, of drinking, with with eating disorders, it's the process that becomes addictive in nature, not not the foods themselves. It's the mm-hmm. process of eating. And and then the thing though is if you can then start to look at that process, that's what's going to reveal what the real issues are. So so rather than if you if you just try to eliminate it, you're not going to get the gift. Mm-hmm. But if you can investigate it, so for example, just simply um, someone that's restricting their food, that's not the only thing they're restricting. Mm-hmm. They're restricting their emotions. They're restricting intimacy. They're restricting new experiences. They're restricting their sexuality. Uh, they put themselves on restriction when they make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this theme of restriction everywhere because they feel like life is too much. 
They're very sensitive and, and, and they're easily overwhelmed. So the restriction shows up all over the place, um, but it concerns us most when it shows up with food because it can be deadly, right? Mm -hmm. And so that gets the attention. But if you could really zoom the lens out and look at the pattern, then as that pattern clears in one area, it's going to affect what's going on with food. As it, it clears with food, it can accept you know other areas. So, so when someone is... Um, um, binge eating or compulsive eating or yo-yo dieting, the theme you're going to find everywhere is um, a theme of scarcity. Mm. It's not just that there's not enough food. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not attention. There's not enough affection. Um, or they feel like they're not enough. Mm -hmm. So you have to really address the scarcity mentality because it's, it infuses everything. Mm -hmm. And someone who's um, binging and purging, for example, you're going to see a pattern of taking on, taking in too much, too quickly, um, uh, and, and not able to assimilate it, so you got to get rid of it. So they don't just do it with food. They, they'll sign up for a gazillion courses, get overwhelmed, and drop out. Mm -hmm. They'll take on a ton of projects, and, and it gets to be too much, so they drop them all. Or they'll meet someone and fall madly in love. And as soon as there's a little snag, they're over it. Or they'll, yeah. they'll meet a person and become best, best, best friends. But at the, the first speck of conflict, they're out of there. So you'll mm -hmm. see this tendency. And so when you can kind of work with that, then all kinds of stuff can happen. There's, there's room for lots of movement there. Yeah, it's so beautiful how you look at the whole entire in individual, you know, you're not just mm -hmm. looking at their particular diagnosis or, you know, mm -hmm. the particular, this moment in time, but you're considering the whole individual, you're considering all aspects, you're considering how it integrates into all the areas of their life. And I have seen from clients of mine that have come from the medical system, how that is not the case still. Like with, despite all the knowledge we have, despite all the studies that have been done, despite all the wonderful books that have been published, like by, you know, professionals like yourself as well, how, I mean, everybody follows their own path when it comes to different treatment therapies and, you know, whatever resonates with them. But it sometimes feels so archaic the way eating difficulties and disorders are still being managed in 2020. And it's, and how do you handle that? Because you have such a, you know, profound program that has helped so many people, but you still see this happening. And how do you balance that just as you and as an individual and a professional when, you know, because I tend to feel quite sad when I see clients with chronic diseases that are being given more and more and more medications when the science is pretty profound that, you know, food and diet are linked, but I still have doctors telling my clients that diet and disease are not linked. And I struggle with that a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's almost like you have to accept it if you are a pioneer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And I love how you that's call it. Of, that's kind of the deal, right? It's yeah. like that means that um, it can be pretty lonely at times, mm -hmm. um, but it also means you can't not do it. If you see right. a certain truth, you can't keep your mouth shut. And honestly, what keeps me going is from my experience, and I believe this with every fiber of my being, that those people who struggle with eating and get on their recovery path are the people the world has been waiting for. Mm -hmm. 
because they're born typically with an innate sensitivity and an amazing capacity to perceive subtle realities. And if, but the, 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 the role a lot of times the, the eating disorder plays is to distract them from that because they want to fit in, right? Mm -hmm. But once they learn how to um, be what I call a thin-skinned person in a thick-skinned world that doesn't value their sensitivities, then they're able to bring that level of sensitivity, which, which comes with compassion and empathy. And our world needs that now more than ever. So for me, yeah, it's kind of like when you're an outlier, but it's kind of cool when you meet um, these others, they don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't know it, but they're on the journey too. And so that's kind of how I deal with it. When I look at like the insanity of the world around food and all other kinds of things. Um, and, and then to know that, okay, though, um, it, it begins someplace. It begins by, and I believe that um, consciousness shifts and it grows. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more people that tap into a more a higher vibrational way of perceiving things and behaving, um, that has an impact. And so for, for many people, well, even for myself, um, the, the world of eating disorders has frankly just been a portal. It was a portal that opened uh, up for me to do this work of helping to shift consciousness. Mm -hmm. And those who struggle, they go through that portal also. Yeah. But ultimately, because again, when you've been doing this work for this long and you get to know the people who also have struggled and watch what they're doing in the world, oh my gosh, it's, yeah. it's amazing. So that's why I keep doing what I do. It just mm -hmm. inspires me you know, in so many different ways. Yeah, I can resonate on that in so many levels. I mean, I was so thrilled the other day. I read one of my students' uh, emails and he had been a client and then, you know, did one of our training programs. And then he is now teaching a course. And, you know, and I thought, oh, I wonder what he's teaching about. And sure enough, he's, you know, taken what I've taught him and then elevated it. And he's teaching it in this wonderful, amazing way through his personal experience, bringing that in, in his storytelling. And you just see like how incredible it is. And so I do believe that for sure, that all my clients have been true gifts, you know, to me, but also I see how they're taking that work into the world. So they're literally our gifts to humanity as well. And you no, know, I resonate with you on so many levels. There's one question I have to ask you around, um, I, I think it's a relatively new term. Um, I don't know if it was there 20 years ago, but orthorexia, because I see a lot of young girls that I see in their 20s. Um, I don't even think they're millennials anymore. They're like a different, uh, you know, whatever age group. And they have autoimmune disorders. And then they learn about foods, but then now they, you know, they come back and and they're just scared about foods in general. So is yeah. this, what do you think about this? Or yeah, I mean, it's a real thing. And I think, yes, I think that's uh, something that has been growing by leaps and bounds because of the world we live in. Um, and, and if you look at the, you look at its roots, what is it? So, so typically orthorexia is connected to wanting to be good, right? Mm. Um, 
and to uh, do things the right way and, and the correct way. And then don't color outside the lines. Don't eat your hummus if it's been in a plastic container, right? It's right. like the, the, the rigidity gets more and more. And so what once was something that, uh, that was a container, right, that, that helped becomes a prison, and so um, you see this happening also with, with movement. So it can often happen with folks that were um, athletes and then it became more and more rigorous and they got more and more attached to the perfectionism. And next thing you know, they had exercise addiction. Mm. So, so it's a fine line between having um, a flexibility without being too loose yeah. and having structure without being too tight. And so right there, that tells me, okay, this is the skill set that somebody needs to learn. And it's a, it's a skill of learning. How do you balance, right? Mm. How do you balance so that you have um, rules that don't imprison you, but guide you? Mm. And, and so, that is, so that's how it gets played out, you know, with food or with exercise. And then the question is, wait a minute, how come you, you don't feel safe if you don't have these strict rules that just are yeah. going to lock everything in? Well, now, now let's look at that one, right? right. And Einstein said, he said, um, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said, um, the most important question you can ask yourself is, is the universe a benign environment or not? Because mm. that informs everything in your life. Right. So, so then that's the question is like, where is it you don't feel safe? Mm. And then what is the skill set you need to cultivate a sense of safety, whether that's your intuition, so you can notice things that be, before they happen, really, but you can pick up the vibe. Or is it a, a, a setting boundaries, saying no to what you don't want and yes to what you do want? What is the skill set? Because mm -hmm. typically you're going to find fear in there. Right. Yeah, and it is an interesting one because as we live in a world where, you know, we have access to more and more information, I can't remember how many scientific studies get published every day. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize how biased a lot of studies are. So, you know, we have all this information floating around. Um, I think they say like every day on the internet, the amount of information that's created is more than the amount of information that was ever created, you know, since the beginning yeah. of the internet, oh, yeah. like oh, it's yeah. so much information. So I find that a lot of people are lost, you know, because there's, okay a hundred million ways to navigate the world. And so is the universe benign, you know, or, you know, you know, what active role does it play in your life? And it's, and I think it's, I don't even know how people today, especially like my children begin to answer that because I think they've been so used to going out and getting the answer from the internet, as opposed right. to stopping and seeing exactly. and asking yourself that. And so how do you, how do we support these young kids and adults and myself and my parents in, in becoming more intuitive? Well, I, I think you, you, you talk about it. Um, for me, it's, it's your inner guidance system. And your inner guidance system is made up of instincts, emotions, 
intuitions. Mm -hmm. That's why people who are struggling with eating, um, typically they're emotionally illiterate also. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the reason why it's really important to develop the skill, it's part of your inner guidance system. And so this idea that the answers are outside of ourselves is becoming more and more obsolete because which answer? Right? Mm -hmm. There's a gazillion of them. And so if you, if you don't know how to take whatever's out there and run it through your inner guidance system, it gets overwhelming really quickly. Yeah. Um, and then again, that's when you want all kinds of rules and regulations because it doesn't feel safe. You don't know what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And, and, and the truth is we only know what's right or wrong for us. So, you know, what make, makes sense to someone might not make sense to another person. And that's why running it past your inner guidance system. And then you can bring your intellect on board and say, okay, does this make sense? Um, uh, is this useful uh, and practical? But you need all faculties. And, and frankly, I think um, humanity is, is evolving to a place in which wisdom is going to matter more than yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Because wisdom requires that you've already taken it in and you've digested it and you've explored it and in many different areas and, and then you've honed it and then you've found the kernel of truth um, rather than just getting attached to dogma. Yeah. So, you know, um, orthorexia is dogma. And I mean, orthodox, it's, it's why it's called orthorexia. It's, it has the word orthodox in it. Yeah, and it makes me really crave, you know, a time in history or creating a new time in history where we are more, for example, philosophical, where we walk more and just talk more and talk more without the stacks of books over here and the internet over here, but actually just, mm -hmm. you know, chatting together and and you know, and I tend to find a lot of my sentences start with, oh, a recent study said, um, but then even for myself, you know, forgetting that I do need to stop and figure out how that applies to myself. And I just hired a training coach um, because I'm going to be running and biking across Canada next year mm -hmm. to raise awareness mm -hmm. about the relationship of real food and, and diabetes and heart disease and these leading, you know, chronic diseases. But I love this coach so much because of the fact that it doesn't matter what I say to him if I say, okay, well, there's this, you know, technique of running or what about this food and running? And, you know, and he's like, Nikki, I want you to figure out what works for you. And it kind of leaves me a little bit blindsided to say, literally blindsided because I'm like, oh, right. It's, it's rare that I actually do stop to figure out, you know, I've kind of done that work around food and I know the food that works for me for leading a regular lifestyle, but not one that involves four hours of training a day. So now I'm back in this place where I do feel a little bit lost in who am I and who am I in relationship to my environment? Is my environment benign? But I almost wish that we can engage in those philosophical discussions yeah. a little bit because, more. Yeah, because the not knowing uh, is, is disturbing if you mm -hmm. don't, uh, aren't connected to your center, your true yeah. self. I call it the soul self. Um, and so, you know, um, we keep thinking that the world ought to be predictable. Mm -hmm. And when it misbehaves, we freak out. Right? Yeah. Because we think, but you know what? It never has been predictable. 
And um, your best reliance is on your ability to read and respond to the, the different situations as they arise in your life and to be able to do so in the moment rather than relying on past judgments. You can use that as a, as a reference, but that's where the inner critic will just really mess with you and keep you from recognizing and responding to what's right there in front of you. Yeah. So again, for me, recover the recovery journey teaches you how to develop the skills that if someone has an eating disorder, they've got these skills long after their eating disorder is gone. Mm -hmm. They've got skills that's going to help them navigate through life, which is a pretty cool thing in my book. Yeah, definitely. And, and for, you know, anybody who's listening to this, who feels that, you know, they don't have any eating difficulties or, you know, they, and I hear this a lot where, um, and I'm always so shocked by it because I've had a mentor, you know, for most of my life, like, I just really believe in the fact that we need to have elders in our community and, and we need rites of passage and we need to, you know, be held in our, in our communities. And I think a lot of people are lost there because we don't really have those systems in place anymore. But so there seems to be this, oh, I was just going to say there just seems to be I don't know, some taboo around having a psychologist or a counselor or a coach mm -hmm. or a mentor or an elder. Now it's like, I have to figure it, to, like figure it out for myself. Yeah. Or I know like my body says I crave this, so I must crave it, you know, and mm -hmm. people just are now going by, I don't know what they think is their instinct, but I, I, I it's sometimes, you know, yeah. saying something else. We're pretty conditioned people. Um, uh, that's, that's what happens to us. That's how we become civilized. We are very little of us. It, it remains our authentic self, which is why it's precious. It's why it's, it's, it's worth tapping into. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think one of the things, again, I think this, um, recovery journey or, um, addressing whatever it is you're struggling with it is an initiation. And um, I remember listening to an interview with an elder where the interviewer said, oh, it's so unfortunate that we don't have initiations um, the way, you know, we used to. And the elder said, what do you think illness is? Mm. You see, if you look at the elements, initiation is an internal process. Ritual, rites of passage, that's the external announcement to the community that you've mm. undergoing initiation. But all initiations start with um, the, first, the first stage is isolation, whether that means you go off on your own and sit in a hut, or whether it means you have breast cancer and feel like you can't connect with anybody and now you're all isolated and you don't have anyone to talk to. Um, it begins with the stage of being isolated, pulled back, and, mm -hmm. uh, um, and then the second stage is the ordeal. And any one of us that have been through initiation does not describe the ordeal as fun, right? But yeah. it's necessary because that's where you're letting go of the old so you can make room for the new, the old conditioned belief systems and patterns and identities and thoughts about who you are. They start to kind of get messed with, right? And sometimes if we don't know we're going through an initiation, we'll fight that. 
And then the third stage is after you've been through that, that's bringing it back to the community, this newfound wisdom, this new way of knowing that's now like deeply embedded within you. So of course there are the expected initiations, like when someone gets married, right? They go from being single to being a couple and we have rituals, we have ceremonies, we have rituals for, for all kinds of transitions that we don't even know, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, with rituals, often you have, you have, um, you light candles or uh, uh, you might have flowers and you have chants. And I can tell you a chant that I'll bet every single one of your listeners knows and has participated in this ritual, but it's hollow. We don't really realize it. And the chant goes like this. Happy birthday to you. Happy yeah. birthday to you. Right? Yeah. So we do it. We have to do it. We say, oh, okay, come, come, come. We got to say happy birthday. We got to say happy. We all know we have to do it. Yeah. But we've lost sight of what's happening is that person is transitioning from one year into the next. And at a deep level, we understand that at that moment, that liminal moment, that person is... Um, vulnerable there because energy is moving from inside of them but also there's the press from outside and so Mm -hmm. we we light the candles we gather in circle we create a container to announce and celebrate that movement that's internal and also external Mm -hmm. so for me that's what the recovery journey is Um, and it's a whole different way of looking at it but it begins with stepping into the unknown. And that is so not pleasant. <laughs> we do, you don't know where you're headed. And no. we live now in a world, the world right now is being initiated. Look at that. We've mm-hmm. all been sent to our rooms, right? To think about what we've done. We, yeah. <laughs> we're really, we're like, we're, we are isolation, right? We're totally. isolated. Um, so, and then there's the ordeal you know, is not fun. It's life and death. People are dying. Um, It's serious, Um, but it's also transformative. And that's kind of what I, you know, I turn to when things get difficult, when, when I can't hop on a plane and go where I want to go, when I can't, you know, um, gather with all my friends and hang out. Um, That's part of their deal. And it helps me to see it as an, as initiation. Um, and, and the same, that's the same, I think with the recovery journey. I really, really love that because it deeply resonates with that journey that every single one of my clients actually addresses. They speak it out loud because when they are turning to food as medicine, there's a separation that happens from their community because they can't just go out and have a steak dinner with their friends. They're not going to eat the same foods at a birthday party. And it is the number one thing they address every single time. But what is isolation? The isolation and they're afraid of it. They do not. And uh, and often I've had clients who will not even engage in this at all. They'll say, no, no, I'm just going to do the conventional treatment because they don't want to face the isolation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is not a place that they want to go. And, and, you know, and you can't force somebody into it. Do they have to be willing to step into it? But that has been the repetitive theme over and over again. And some people do handle it well, I would say. And the ones that do actually, I see that they, 
they they fare well. They're the ones who are like, they find new tricks for themselves to make their isolation easier. They invite people over and they eat the same foods that they're eating. And, you know, they'll make it a celebration of what they're going through, but they do have to go through those, those um, transitions. And unfortunately, it feels like we live in a time where everybody wants to avoid the pain, you know? Oh, totally. Because nobody wants to sit the in skills. it. You see, yeah. the thing is, we are so darn emotionally illiterate. We don't even understand the nature of emotions. We think they're things. We don't understand that their energy is like, like waves. And, and they'll come in, they'll peak, and they pass. They're temporary. They don't last. Um, not that they won't come back again. Yeah. But so we're not taught how to be with our emotions, how to ride the waves, um, I think of like, if you went to the ocean with your bookie board and you stood in front of the waves like this, yeah. what's going to happen? Boom. You're going to get knocked down over and over again, unless there's almost no wave at all. And until you get the idea, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe if I turn around, I can ride this wave and oh no, I'll ride, I'll ride this. And then, and then after a while, it gets to be fun. Yeah. And when the big set comes in, and it does for all of us who are on the planet for any length of time, whether it's loss of a loved one, mm -hmm. medical crises, financial distress, they're coming. But you'll know how to ride them. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the skill that um, we're not taught. We're taught, in fact, we're taught just the opposite. We're taught to get over our feelings yeah. or stop being so sensitive. And it's like, it, it, we're not taught at all the nature. And so then we think there's something wrong with us because we can't get over them. We can't stop them. It's like, well, no, you can't do that any more than you can swim up a mountain. Mm -hmm. um, if there's, there's the nature of emotions. It's, they're designed to flow and not let, you can't even hold on to them, right? Try to hold on to your happiness. And then you, you find yourself, you can't, that's their nature. Mm -hmm. So learning to ride them um, and, and be with them in a whole different way is a skill. Yeah. And, and not, and not allowing them to also take over as well, because there is that element where I've seen, um, you know, with so many self-help books, everybody describes how we should handle or manage or control or ride these emotions. But then you see people saying, well, I'm entitled to feel this way. So then I see that they will sit in it, but not actually process it or not actually, you know, and it, and it's interesting to watch as well. And I mean, and of course it's their journey and that's how they're interpreting it as the way to, to navigate what they're feeling. That's the misunderstanding. You see, that's the other thing we're not taught about emotions is they're not the same as behavior. Mm -hmm. So, so f there's nothing wrong with feeling like smashing someone's face in. There's yeah. absolutely something wrong with doing it. Exactly. So differentiating um, um, what it, what it means to allow the feeling to move through you, the full force of it is, it often requires no action at all. Yeah. But uh, and also means um, you don't wallow in it because that's kind of holding on to it. Even even though it's uncomfortable, at least it's familiar. Yeah. You know, it's like I I I I don't know how many times I've heard that one. It's like I'd rather have the discomfort of my pain and my fear than I would um, with the not knowing. Mm. I know this one. 
been here, done that, got the tattoo to prove it. I, you know, I know this one, so I'm going to stay here. Right. Right. So what do you, you suggest then when, and it's probably, I probably know the answer to this, but we'll just repeat it anyway for our audience. Um, when somebody is having those really beautiful, strong, new emotions, no matter what it is, it could be from, you know, a loss of a loved one, financial crisis, right down to just, I'm feeling blue today. Um, you know, what are, wh- how would you suggest that people, you know, I don't even want to say move forward you know, Mm -hmm. or just acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I do a lot in my work, because I think it's so important, um, is I help people create their inner parents. So everyone talks about the inner child, but who is parenting Mm -hmm. that child? So primarily the inner mother, because, um, it's so connected to eating difficulties. If you, if you think of our very first experience on the planet of being in distress, ah, we're given either the breast or the bottle and we go, oh. Mm-hmm. So what has happened, again, back to this literal culture we live in, um, um, we don't understand the energy of mothering, which is archetypal, and an archetype is a culture that a concept that crosses all culture and all time. So if you take the concept of mother, if you could go all the way back in time, you'd find that concept. If you could go into the future, you'd find it. And if you went to any culture on the planet, you'd find it. It's archetypal. So the problem is, is that um, when we're wanting mothering energy, which is nurture, soothing, comfort, We assume we can either only get it from our biological mother or the woman who raised us. And if she's no longer on the planet or she's not capable or she's not willing, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. Or we get it from the concrete physical symbol Mm -hmm. of mothering, which is food. Uh, And and so um, rather than going for the energy itself, so, uh, and we understand this, like you could have a thousand freedom flags. Are you more free? Yeah. No, the flag is the symbol. It doesn't matter how many you have. Right. So, so um, then the process is, okay, how do I access that energy? And that's what I call, you create your own inner mother. And part of the dilemma for me is that, well, it's not even a dilemma, it's an understanding that nobody Nobody ever got the perfect mother that gave you exactly what you wanted, when you wanted, how you wanted, as much as you wanted, and none of the nonsense you didn't want. Never happened, right? No, some people fared better than others, but nobody. Um, and so for me, oh, then that's archetypal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know whose idea that was, but I just know that this is how it is. And so the next question for me is then, well, if that is so, why is that? Why would that be the case that nobody gets it? We land here on planet earth and, 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 and we don't get that perfect mother in yeah. energy that we crave. And I believe the answer I come up with is because that's our job. That's mm-hmm. our job. Why? Because nobody else can create and give you what you want, when you want it, how you want it, and none mm-hmm. of the nonsense you don't want. You're the only one that can do it. 
So then that begins the work of, okay, so now you have to create your own inner mother um, because um, it, it, it's got to fit for you, right? It's got to be the, the fit. And so then a lot of times clients will say, oh, great. Once again, I got to do it all myself. And it's like, well, not quite. Because when you create your own inner mother, it functions as an antenna that can access, draw you towards and draw towards you mothering energy because it's archetypal. That means not only is it inside of you, but it's outside of you. It's everywhere. So you can get mothering energy from your dog. Yeah. You can get mothering energy from your husband. You can get mother energy from a coworker. You can get mothering energy from mother nature. We don't yeah. say father nature, right? right? Who says that? No, we say mother nature. Why? Because at a deep level, we understand the soothing comfort we can get from being with nature. Mm -hmm. So when you create your own inner mother, then you access the energy. So the way to do it here, here for your listeners, I'll just say, this is how you do it. Now I'm, I'm older. <laughs> so I come from the era of when you created a photograph, you first had a negative. Right. So that's, that's the energy, the uh, metaphor that I use for this, because with the, the negative is the opposite of what the photograph looks like. What's dark in the negative is light in the photograph and vice versa. So you begin with your own mother. Now, this is not a diss on mothers. Nobody got the perfect mother. Nobody is the perfect mother. Yeah. So there's never the perfect match. And so you list three things that you wished your mother had given you and didn't. Mm. And it's the kind of stuff you say, oh, why does she have to blah, blah, blah? Or why can't she blah, blah, blah? Or, oh, if only she would have blah, blah, blah. And there may be a thousand, but we start with three because we're keeping it simple. So you list three things. And, and maybe let's say if she were super critical, you might say, I wish she were more accepting. Mm -hmm. you know, or or um, if she you know, had to work all the time, you can say, I wish she was more present. Right. Yeah. So you list three things that, or I wish um, she had given me more of her attention than she was able to give, whatever. So you list those three things and then you can, uh, a lot of times with clients, I'll do like a guided imagery where, where I have them imagine, okay, let's imagine you had a magic wand and you got, you got it. You got the perfect mother. Um, and, and the, how, how would she be giving you these three things? You know, what would that look like? What would that feel mm -hmm. like to get it? And kind of, you know, just using your imagination, which is our, one of our superpowers. Yeah. People say, I don't have a good imagination. And I say, what do you think worry is? This yeah, is a bad exactly. use of your superpower, right? <laughs> totally. So you use your imagination. What would that look like? What would it feel like? And then I have them go back to those very three things that they listed and Realize those are their marching orders. Put in front of each one of those things, I need to. I need to be more present with myself. I need to pay more attention to myself. I need to be more self-accepting. Mm -hmm. And that's where you begin to create your own inner mother. And then you have this voice inside of you. When you're faced with these difficulties that you were mentioning, in time, that's who you turn to. And again, we want an inner mother that is not um, super um, um, 
indulgent. Oh, chocolate for breakfast, whatever you want, dear. Okay, yeah. Right. Or super harsh chocolate for breakfast. What the hell are you thinking? Yeah. But, but, uh, but inquisitive and covering. Oh, chocolate for breakfast. What's that about? Right. Mm-hmm. So, so creating that within yourself um, is, is so powerful. It's, it's a real amazing resource. Um, uh, and, and at the Light of the Moon Cafe, we spend a whole week doing this. And we have songs that you can listen to that hold that energy. Or everyone chats in the forum and talks about, you know, shares their experiences of how they've created it. We have a drawing activity or a writing activity where you find her voice. What would she say? And actually, most of us know what she would say. Yeah. <laughs> we know what we've wanted to hear our whole lives. Totally. That is so beautiful and so powerful on every level because number one you know it's it actually is a roadmap for taking responsibility for yourself right and it's also a roadmap to stop blaming others for the way your life is whether it's good or bad right instead of giving away your power and saying well which i tend to do is you know it's because i have an amazing husband that's what enables me to be the great the entrepreneur that i am or my husband's amazing that's why my kids are so great you know i tend to give away a lot of my power um, and, uh, and you have to, you, you can't do this exercise and come out the other end without fully taking responsibility and stopping to blame, which is so beautiful. And I think it's such an easy tool to do as well. Like there's no excuse, but then one thing that came up for me was that, Ooh, I'm scared to do this yeah. exercise, right? Like it's scared and excited because I don't think I've ever stopped to, um, see it that way. You know, and it also makes me realize you can do the same activity with your partner as well, right? So if you're in a relationship and you're like, he doesn't give me this or she doesn't give me that and da, da, you know, you can do the same exercise. Well, what is it that you wish they would give you? And then you can actually go out there and find it yourself. And maybe, you know, if it's humor and, and, you know, watching movies together, maybe your partner doesn't like that, but you can find somebody else who wants to do that with you, right? That camaraderie, but you still love your partner and you can still be with them, but you're not expecting them to be the perfect partner. Be all. Yeah. Or even in your job as well. Right. Right. Or even in your business. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of areas you can use this. What's really freeing um, um, for a lot of um, my clients, and again, I hear this with women at the cafe, they, they, they find freedom in, okay, I never got that from my mother and I never will. That means I'm screwed. And it's like, no, now I can get it, right? Yeah. So there's something very freeing about that. It doesn't mean that all is lost. Um, you know, just clarify what that is and you can have that. Yeah. And I see that also by recognizing that I see that deep, it's almost like I just saw a thread going back through the generations, because once you realize that you were never promised the perfect mother to begin with, your mother was also not given the perfect mother and her mother and her mother. And so you see this connection, but I think for a lot of our mothers who were maybe in survival mode with like provide food and not get raped and not get killed, you know, or whatever it was, um, depending on where you grew up in the world, that um, they might not have had this tool available to them, right? To say like, how probably do I not? Probably not. <laughs> like we are in a very lucky time in history where we can stop and do an exercise like this because we don't have to go plow the fields and and put food on the table and yeah. escape lions. So yeah. you really, yeah, it's a very beautiful. Yeah. 
Very beautiful, simple exercise. Well, but nevertheless, we do live in a patriarchy. And what that means is mothers are not given a whole lot of support from the culture. Um, we're not living in a tribe where you just, you know, hand the baby over to whoever's walking by. If you're feeling exhausted, there, there isn't that for us. And so, um, um, we're left to fend as best we can. And this has been going on for a while. So, you know, it's no wonder that mothering is in short supply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a part that makes me, you know, quite sad, um, actually, like just because I was in Africa visiting my grandmother who actually lives in, or she did up until she passed away a year ago, but, you know, she passed away at 92 in absolute bliss. And she lived in a matriarchal society where the men were there to go wake up in the morning at four in the morning, plow the fields, but the women were together and the babies were passed around. And, right. you know, these new mothers did not look exhausted. You know, they would take a nap in the day and the cousins would hold the baby. And, you know, and there was just so much joy that you saw in this little village in Africa, no running water, no electricity, but it was a matriarchal society. And when I saw that for the first time, it it did bring up deep sadness for me because we could have that here. We could. And, and there's, it's not that far away. So, you know, I grew up on Guam and, and uh, the Chamorro culture there is matrilineal and was matriarchal. Um, And, and when I, I, my first child was colicky. Oh, it's dreadful. (laughs) For four months, she either ate, screamed or, or, or slept one of the three. That's it. Those are the only options. And at one point I was so frazzled and my husband turned to me, he goes, why don't you go to Guam? And I went, yeah. And I'll never forget, as soon as that baby started to cry, there were hands right there to take the baby. And it was like, uh, okay, now I can see, you know. And you can create that too. I think you can use that, this exact exercise of mothering. You can create that if you're a new mother having a baby. And it's what I was fortunate to do. I had met these women in yoga and you know, we would just all hang out together every day, all day. And, you know, the husbands would go off to work. We'd be on mat leave, but we'd cook together, eat together, sleep, nap together. Like we did everything and the babies were just passed around and it really was, but you have to create that. And you have to, I did see some friends who would witness me doing this, but they would say, Oh no, I don't want to, you know, put pressure on you to take care of my baby right now. Cause I'm feeling down, you know, and you have to let that go and accept that, we're all wanting to do this for each other. And so you have to go out there and make that happen for yourself. So it is taking that responsibility and it would not take much for any woman to create that for themselves and to have that kind of society that you had in Guam and that I had, you know, my grandmother had in Africa. Yeah, but we are conditioned, right? We've already been conditioned to think we should be able to do it all by ourselves. And if we don't, there's something wrong with us. So now we've got a lot of shame and and people are going to see that I don't got, I don't have it all together. I mean, the the conditioning is nothing to scoff at. Yeah. Um, It's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, it is powerful for sure. And like, as you mentioned that too, it makes me realize that a lot of women right now having babies as well want to be the perfect mother. Oh, right. Yeah. You see it on it's Instagram like, and it's, it's like orthorexia. It's the same thing. Exactly the same thing. 
I don't think there's a term for that yet, is there? No, we've ever. Yeah, we're going to have to come up with that term for sure. Wow. Um, We have been chatting for an hour and a half, and I like, I literally am just sitting here, like, with leaning into my screen and just, you know, wanting to just hear more and more. And you really are a storyteller, um, you know, through and through. And the power of storytelling is quite profound. and, And I love just being in your presence, even though we are you know, in two different, you know, countries right now and on Zoom. Um, what are some last minute, you know, pieces that you would like to leave with our audience? You know, you have a one, wonderful offerings happening right now, everything from ways to participate, you know, that paid programs to free programs. And, and for somebody who hasn't been able to be in your presence like I have for the last hour and a half, what are ways that they can work with you? Well, I do individual sessions via Zoom. Um, I have clients from all over the world. Uh, And then I have the Light of the Moon Cafe, which is, it's an, they're interact, a lot of the courses are interactive. So we have a forum and I respond to all the comments and questions and have live calls. Um, I have a residential treatment facility on the island of Maui called Aipono. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody is in need of of really being able to immerse themselves in in recovery, uh, and so uh, this is the work that I that I love to do, and I invite people they can check me out on my website dranitajohnston.com or lightofthemooncafe.com, and um, I'm available to answer questions or. Amazing. And is your book an audiobook? I tried to It's an audiobook and it's in seven languages now. Amazing. So get the audiobook. And did you read your audiobook as well? No, I wanted to. And and they insisted that uh, there had to be someone professional. So I, I would have liked to, but yeah. it, it didn't work out. Yeah, the same happened for me as well. And now as I've been listening to all these books writ- read by the authors, yeah. I'm like, oh, I should have fought right. on that one a little bit more. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But of- at, the, at the cafe, I have, it's all audio storytelling. That's my voice. Oh, perfect. Um, so I uh, had a professional uh, um, record. So there's a lot of, the storytelling is, is in my voice. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect. And is that the same as your podcast as well? The Cafe? No, I no. don't have a, I don't have a podcast. Oh, so I, I, I have, a, I have a blog. I I'm on podcasts a lot. But oh, that's what's listed. Yeah. yeah. That's what's listed yeah. on your site as yeah. well. So there's so many ways for people to get in touch with you. And I would suggest for people to not wait that if you have that little inkling, you know, that there's something happening in your life and you want to, be able to go through that period of isolation and initiation and then coming back out and, you know, just really going through your journey. Start now. I always say the best time to have planted a tree was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So don't wait. Um, and then once the borders open, uh, can, can people still go to the treatment center in Hawaii? Are you- can because people um, get tested as soon as they arrive. They, we have an extra cottage for quarantine, which is about, you know, just takes 24 hours. Yeah. Um, and then they can come in the facility. So yes. Okay. That's perfect. Good. So people know that they can go now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as well, if you have a medical diagnosis that you can also cross borders as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Right now there's not a problem flying into Hawaii. Okay. From, okay. So, okay. That's perfect um, as well. So 
Anita, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I have learned so much from you today and so many pieces that apply to the work I do with my clients um, around food as medicine um, for the reversal of chronic disease that I'm going to be using and implementing into our programs as well. I'm going to go back and reread your book because it's been too long since I read it. So everybody, please go out there and get a copy of it. It has been a bestseller for years and years um, mm -hmm. as well. So I'm so glad that you brought that to the world for everybody to learn from. And I love how relevant it is still today that, you know, than what it was back in 1996 as well. So it's already helped thousands and it's going to help that millions more, um, on the planet because we need this more than ever. So thank you so much for being on our show, Anita. My pleasure. Thank you. Great. And we'll have all the links in the show notes. So nobody's going to miss out on being able to connect with you. So that's going to be wonderful. Great. So how did you enjoy that show today? I absolutely loved interviewing Anita because of the fact I've been following her work for over 20 years. Um, like we mentioned in the show, a dear friend of mine who was working with teenagers who had body image issues, eating disorders, she had introduced that book to them and it helped to transform their lives. And since that point, 20 something years ago, I've always been telling everybody to get a hold of Dr. Anita's book and read it, learn from it. It applies to women, it applies to men, it applies to children, it applies to the elderly. It literally is a book for everybody. So get a copy for yourself and share this podcast with others. And in case you didn't know, I am running and cycling across Canada, like I mentioned earlier, and I want you to join our 22 million strong training tribe. So go on to Facebook, Google 22 million strong and sign up for our training tribe, where I'll be walking you through how I went from being an overworked mom, a mom who truly loved working so much, it was hard to tear myself away from my computer when my kids were in school or in extracurricular activities. And I chose working over moving my body. Thank goodness I was eating really well over these last 16 years. Otherwise, there's no doubt my body would be in disarray, most likely be battling a few chronic diseases. But because I was eating well, I was able to keep my health in check. But my cardiovascular health and my endocrine health probably could have used a kickstart a long time ago. But what is nice about what I've just experienced over this past nine weeks of training is that you can literally go from being a couch potato or a behind the computer workaholic and get off of your butt and get cycling, get running in a way that doesn't harm your body, that actually heals your body. And I've been able to show that. I ran my first half marathon a couple weeks ago, and I'm on track for six to eight weeks from now to do my first century ride, which is a hundred mile ride in one continuous shot. So in one day. And apparently my coach, Chris Hout, he is a two-time Olympic champion. He's an endurance athlete. He's been coaching athletes for decades. This guy is amazing. And, you know, he feels pretty confident that I am going to make this trip across Canada without injury and truly being in optimal health as well. And of course, doing this on a plant-based diet. So follow my journey, 
If you go to our website, you can click the donate button. Donate if you want to become a sponsor or know of any other company out there that would love to sponsor this endeavor where I'm going to be also not just cycling and biking and running across Canada, but I'll also be stopping in to work alongside Indigenous communities and communities of people of color, as well as working with groups of physicians and youth as well to help people remember that your kitchen is your local pharmacy, that food is medicine, and that your diet is ultimately responsible for your health. So we don't need to needlessly be dying from these chronic diseases that are plaguing our society. We can actually overcome them and we can reverse these diseases so that we are not needlessly living in pain and suffering from the expenses and the um, diminished life that we might be experiencing as a result of living with these chronic diseases. So definitely share this podcast with others. Join on to our 22 million tribe, training tribe, and also check out our websites at The Green Mustache, our collection of plant-based whole food organic restaurants, at Richer Health. If you need a health consult, uh, fill out the form online. Let's set that up so we can turn your health around today. Thanks everyone for being here. See you next week.